personally, I'm most inspired by where technology can help us do our jobs better and help us lead happier, healthier lives. And where some jobs are so terrible, we should just let the robot do all the work. I think for most, you know, humans will continue to play a role and could use wearable robotics as a tool uh, to do their job better, uh, to keep them safe. Hey, what's up, everyone? You're going to love this interview with Josh Caputo, the founder and CEO of Humotech. Humotech is helping to accelerate the pace of innovation in the exoskeleton industry. Exoskeletons are the blending of human and machine capabilities. Josh's background as a roboticist has helped him, has helped him design and prototype a platform that enables the testing of exoskeleton designs more quickly and efficiently. If that sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel, you are not mistaken. That is where a lot of Josh's inspiration comes from. And in this interview, we break down the business model that underpins Humotech, how they've managed to be profitable from a very early stage while iterating quickly, and a whole lot more. Here is my interview with Josh Caputo. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Josh, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Yeah, thanks so much. Really excited. Um, I want to start off when I hear the phrase exoskeleton. I think many people think of sci-fi and I think of very two specific movies, two, two very specific movies, uh, Avatar where, uh, and the matrix, the third one where they hop in these big like suits that are basically making the person way bigger. And there's like a gun mounted on its shoulder or something. And you know, there's just a cool battle scene. Um, obviously I, I've not yet seen any footage of that kind of real stuff, uh, operating in the real real world, but you are with Humotech operating in the exoskeleton space. So can you just talk a little bit about what the current state of the art is and the role that Humotech wants to play in creating exoskeletons? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, the movie sci-fi analogies always, always make me laugh, uh, cause they're not at all the reality, but they did inspire us. Uh, and, you know, the things that inspire you as a, as a child have a way of, you carry them throughout your entire life. For me, uh, it was Mech Warrior, which is a uh, odd reference most people won't get. But uh, yeah, that was me as a, as a preteen gaming away in the basement uh, where I found my inspiration to build walking machines. But I, I sort of forgot about it and went to engineering school. Um, and uh, worked at a bunch of different companies building robots, uh, robots to go to space, robots uh, to diffuse uh, mines in the, the battlefield, um, and eventually uh, plopped myself into a lab at Carnegie Mellon doing wearable robotics. And uh, I never thought of wearable robotics, I mean, beyond a few Hollywood sci-fi movies. Um, I didn't really know what it meant um, until I found myself doing it. 
Uh, so everybody has a kind of different perspective on, on what this field is um, and, you know, the many different flavors of, of wearable machines, I like to call them, uh, because not every wearable device that helps you move is necessarily a robot. Robot kind of gives you the impression of sensors and computers and motors. Um, the simplest wearable machines um, might just be a carbon fiber brace uh, that you put on um, to, you know, restrict your ankle movement in some way. So uh, all of that is in scope for, for Humotech. Um, and we're interested in all of the different industries where this technology might play a part. Um, so the, the medical field is probably the oldest, and uh, most people refer to it as prosthetics and orthotics. Um, so, I mean, all the way back to ancient Egypt, there's, uh, there's been, you know, use of prosthetics in some way or another uh, recorded in history. Um, and uh, ever since the Civil War, we've been seeing a ton of innovation uh, in the space uh, in the United States. Um, now that uh, robotics are getting smaller and more intelligent, uh, we're starting to see the roboticization of wearable uh, machines, wearable devices. Um, but by and large, uh, in the medical domain, those devices are, are too expensive. I mean, most people can't access them, um, given the myriad of regulatory and reimbursement challenges, uh, as well as the challenges with personalization, you know, getting the design just right to fit the needs of the individual. Um, so beyond medical, uh, we're, we're interested in a lot of different spaces. Uh, a lot of our work is related to, uh, you know, kind of the, the warfighter. Um, so reducing risk of injury, accelerating recovery from injury. Um, we do a little bit in the augmentation space, though that's not very big for us yet. Uh, it's a growing area though. So there you're looking at how do you uh, increase the performance of a, of a healthy, you know, service member or, or um, uh, an industry worker or a casual athlete. Uh, so we see the potential for, you know, wearable robotics to help, uh, help you run further, uh, you know, knock an hour off your marathon time uh, whatever your personal mobility goal may be. Uh, so we like to blur the lines of all these different domains at Humotech. And so we've had some other roboticists on before, and, and many of them are not in the wearable robotic space. And so they'll say similar things, as you're saying, to um, remove humans from harm by instead of, you know, having a human sweep for bombs on the street, let's send a robot in there. Or instead of having, you know, someone run through a warehouse and try to pick things up or, you know, lift super heavy things or operate heavy machinery, let's have the robot kind of stand in for those roles. So specifically here, what we're saying is, you know, there are elements of many uh, tasks to be done that cannot be completely automated into a robot executing them for some for some type of reason. And to keep a human in the loop, but to either keep them safer or improve their performance, coming closer to melding, it's not that you're actually like completely interwoven from like a nervous system necessarily, maybe, maybe that is kind of the eventual aspiration, but bringing the robotics onto the human 
in physical contact with them is the gateway to solving that problem. Yeah, I don't think it's a panacea, uh, not necessarily going to solve every problem. But yeah, personally, um, I'm, I'm most inspired by where technology can help us do our jobs better and help us lead happier, healthier lives. Um, and where some jobs are so terrible, we should just let the robot do all the work. I think for most, uh, you know, humans will continue to play a role and could use wearable robotics as a tool uh, to do their job better, uh, to keep them safe, uh, etc. So, um, yeah, the idea of robotics as a tool um, is not unique to the wearable robotics industry. I mean, I think if you've spoken with other roboticists, especially on the entrepreneurship side, um, there are a lot of common themes about how... Um, you know, robotics, AI, it's not like a black box that's going to magically solve all our problems. If only we can figure out how to make it cheap enough. Um, you really have to think about uh, kind of more holistically, uh, you know, what is the, the problem we're trying to solve and how can robotics be used as a tool, perhaps. Um, but one of the things I like about Humotech and the kind of position that I I'm in is Humantech's wearable robotics platform is a tool to discover uh, solutions, mobility solutions. Um, the The solution, though, does not need to be a robot. Um, and that's why earlier I used this term machine instead of robot, because some of the solutions are really simple. And we want our platform to help our customers discover simple solutions. Uh, so, you know, robot or not. Can you articulate with more detail the, the platform element to this? Because another thing, difference than some of these standard robotics companies, many of them are like, hey, here's the robot, the same way someone say, you know, here's the RV or here's the motor vehicle, off you go. Or maybe there's a service component because we'll help operate it or, or, you know, keep it updated. You're not only taking a different business model approach, but seeing... I think painting a very, very big vision for what it can eventually be. Yeah, for sure. And I'm excited you see that. <laughs> Sometimes uh, convincing the person on the other side of the table can can take a lot longer than this. Um, so, yeah, the idea is... Uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. You're good. <laughs> um, Do you want me to re-ask the question or are you good? Uh, yeah, give it to me briefly. Um you're talking about it being a platform. Can you explain how it's a platform and, and the potentiality of that once it's realized? Yeah, for sure. So the, the developer of a wearable solution, uh, you know, it, it all starts with an idea about how to improve mobility. Or it may start with a problem, observing uh, you know, a person or a group of people uh, who have some mobility impairment or some barrier to, to mobility. Um, anyway, very quickly, uh, the technologist starts to imagine solutions and wants to tinker and prototype and draw sketches. And, and uh, you know, this is an exciting process, but it is a very energy-intensive, time-consuming process. Um, you build prototype number one. You put it on yourself. You wear it. You say to yourself, man, this sucks. 
I need to go back to the drawing board. You build another one and you slowly cycle after cycle, build, prototype, test, throw it away, build it again. And this in our space uh, can take, uh, you know, many years uh, and, and, you know, an entire uh, pipeline of ideation uh, can result in nothing permanent. Uh, just a bunch of failed <laughs> prototypes uh, to put on your resume. So my my PhD work back at CMU, zooming way back, was kind of began with the idea that well, we don't want to do that. I don't I don't want to get a PhD where I built a bunch of things and learned that none of them worked. Um, I want to fundamentally improve this process of ideating, testing, evaluating these technologies. Because I saw even then uh, the inherent inefficiency in how people were tackling this problem. Um, so that's the kind of origin story of the platform. Um, how do we leverage lessons learned into uh, an easy to use set of tools that anybody interested in the field can pick up um, and start tinkering uh, with kind of minimal wasted energy and uh, wasted time. Um, so with the Humotech solution, you open up the case, you plug all the different modules in, and on the first day, our goal is for our customers to be uh, testing ideas they have about how to assist their users in moving better, faster, more easily. Um, and that is totally doable. Uh, with the Hemotech solution. Um, and then over months and years, uh, the labs that we work with are able to test thousands of different ideas, um, explore many different applications for their ideas um, at, at a minimal cost um, because they don't need to build a prototype for every question that they want to ask. And what we're really getting to is, you know, this, this almost like diversion that we've seen. People will throw the technology umbrella up and it'll be so, cover so many different domains. But really, uh, it, this, I think it's a, a Peter Thielism, is we've seen this stratospheric revolution in bits and bytes of the world of software and how it's transformed stuff. And we haven't necessarily seen the same rate of change and evolution and technological innovation technological innovation in the physical world, partially for what you said in your very first answer, uh, you know, regulatory bodies that kind of slow the pace of stuff getting implemented or escalate the costs. But also there is just a different cost to testing something physical than to write a couple lines of code, test that code. Hey, it did or did not, you know, complete the function that I wanted to. Really, if we, if we can lower the, toss, the cost to test these physical prototypes, then theoretically, that unlocks a lot of innovation. Yeah, that's an excellent observation. So my mission is to drive that, that cost differential down to zero. And my entry into the world of tech was, you know, as a kid tinkering around with computers, rebuilding them, upgrading them. And, you know, so I, I kind of grew up during the revolution of the personal computer. And that's definitely inspired what I'm doing with, with wearable robotics, um, you know somehow we're trying to marry what, uh, you know, Dell and Windows were doing in the early days, um, both hardware and software components, um, 
coming together to create a revolution in people's ability to get work done. Um, and that relied very much on everyone being able to leverage everyone else's success. Um, so we're trying to create virtuous cycles in the field um, where one invention becomes the foundation for the next inventor to build upon. And to do that, you need common tools. You need a common platform uh, that everybody's using and, and ideating on. And so another part of that picture of hardware being, you know, way more expensive, these, these expensive, you know, prototype cycles, or even just the fact that, um, you know, when Apple wants to ship their newest iPhone, at some point they're like, okay, these are the semiconductors we're using. These are, I'm going to start using terms I don't necessarily know, but, you know, we figured out all the innards of this thing. We figured out the body and we need to go to production to hit our kind of deadlines. And that's, that's the end of the line for this physical product. We'll ship software updates down the line, but physically this is, this is where things stand. Um, can you talk about, man, I lost my role here with the, the question I was trying to get to. <laughs> Do you feel like we covered enough of the OS or do, do, do we want to go deeper on that? Uh, depends on what you think your audience will nerd out about. Because we, we could run with this analogy all day. Um, we, we ship a physical system, which is quite complicated and requires a lot of planning. And then once we ship it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's set for, you know, several years for that customer. Um, but our platform is constantly evolving with each build. So every customer comes to us with, you know, 95% of it is the same as the last customer, but 5% of it is custom. So through every sale, we're reinvesting in the platform, making it better and expanding it in some way. And that's been uh, an essential component of our business model. Um, because we want to create a business that's receptive to the needs that we see out there in the world. We want to create a platform that's, that's useful to people. It delivers what they want. Um, and we're trying not to overemphasize our own ideas about where the field should go. Of course, we have our, our vision for the growth of the industry, but, but that responsiveness is a key part of it. Um, and this requires us to be very agile in how we design and build our systems. And so, so that you brought me perfectly right to where I wanted to go, which was, uh, another common parlance is you can't bootstrap a hardware company because of the cost intensive nature of these, you know, big runs of manufacturing and the just costs of shipping something physical than shipping something that is, you know, software. So can you talk a little bit about how you have uh, kind of countered or pushed against that notion and, and how you've thought about building Humotech? That's a great observation. Uh, as I reflect back on my life, there's often these stories of someone telling me something is impossible and then I go do it. Um, I won't bore you with my whole life story, but that's definitely the truth uh, with with Humotech and with hardware businesses. Uh, I I think the reason I went against the grain on this initially was that I had my first customer lined up before I even started the company. So someone met me at a meeting and they wanted to buy a system. And I thought, all right, well, I better like, figure my shit out. I better start a company and, and figure out like who I'm going to work with and how we're going to build this. Um, and you know, they prepaid for the system. So I, 
right out of the gates, I had a little bit of cash to work with and I had stuff to build and I didn't have time to go, uh, you know, ask for money. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is oversimplifying it a little bit, but one thing sort of led to another. Um, and, you know, we've just been constantly reacting to what, you know, our customers want us to build for them. Now, of course, there are questions of scale. I mean, Humotech's end goal uh, is to see the, you know, the proliferation of wearable robotics technology. And clearly, we're not there yet. I mean, our customers are elite research institutions, government labs. Uh, we're now working with some private for-profit companies developing products. Um, but this is, a, you know, like I said, an elite group. Uh, it's not a mass market technology yet. Um, so, but that's another conversation. But the, the nature, I mean, so there's a, there's a, a core lesson that, uh, when you're in the trenches building a business, you have a greater appreciation for than if you're just kind of watching Shark Tank or watching the social network, which is not every dollar is the same. A dollar coming in from your customer is actually just a dollar that you can use to deploy the service or product that you're trying to deliver. And candidly, a uh, kind of increased likelihood that more dollars are coming in down the door because if you make that customer happy, they're more likely to come spend more money with you down the line. Whereas a dollar from that investor is actually a contract to return them $10 or however many dollars sometime in the future, depending on how the terms are written. So it sounds like you kind of backed into that more so than we're like explicitly anti taking on outside capital. Absolutely. And I think this is a common misperception of, well, people who, you know, have an opinion about me as a founder. Um, I, I was also just very confused in the beginning. I was trying to figure out how to build a business. And some of the advice I got about how to do that well just wasn't adding up for me. Um, and, you know, this, this tension to deliver on the dollars your customers gave you, you know, that's a contract. Uh, you have to deliver. And, and you know, that, that's what kept me up at night is, you know, I told this, I sold this customer on a vision of this amazing machine that unlocks all these possibilities for them. Uh, I, I better deliver. And my vision is, you know, if I repeat that well enough uh, for enough customers, uh, then I'm in a good position uh, to start spending somebody else's money. And you'll have more leverage when you bring on that potential investor and not sell as much of your company to them. Yeah. Um, so uh, another premise of a platform, and, and it, it, you know we're in the nascent stages, but you said a couple interesting things. Number one, you're working with these elite institutions. It's not mass market, but the, the tastemakers, the folks that are probably on the cutting edge of eventually creating the mass market product are these types of characters. Like that's, that's where the, the, you know, the next great innovation is going to come from. Talk a little bit, uh, you know, there's, there's an idea, I believe it's a Bill Gates quote that he said, you know, for Microsoft to be a platform, it has to capture uh, like 10% or less of the total value that it creates. So someone else can come onto the platform and realize, you know, exponentially more value than what Microsoft manages to extract. But because of them being the enabler, because of them being the thing that makes it happen, you're going to still be a piece of that upswing that the other company or entity realizes. Tell me about how you're thinking about that as it pertains to Hemotech. 
I love this. You need to send me that quote after this uh, interview because um, that really resonates with me. Um, I have worked really hard to bake a sort of selflessness into the DNA of the company, um, constantly reminding my team that we're here to enable others, um, not to gobble up all of the value that, that we can see. Um, and yeah, it's, it's exactly as you describe. Our, our success um, is totally intertwined with our customer success and the growth of the industry as a whole. Um, so, I mean, we're even supporting uh, open source initiatives, which I think a lot of people would say is crazy for a robotics uh, startup. But there's applications in the marketplace where that makes sense. And we want to be able to support, you know, that activity. Um, so, again, the wearable robotics that you imagine, you know, the, the Iron Man suit or whatever it is, uh, is just one example of the technology. And, and there's a, a whole plethora of ways that the technology can be applied and every application is going to require a different approach, a different kind of team, a different kind of company, a different kind of money. Um, so as Humotech has grown, we're now seven years in business. Um, we're building a platform, but we're also uh, working towards several you know, key application areas since we have a product we call the prosthetic foot emulator that we've been working on a long time. Um, people who know Hemotech will remember the story from, you know, even before the company was founded. That's an effort that is uh, 10 years in the making now. It's a slow burn. It's a medical product. It's a new kind of medical product. We're going to be going through a de novo application with the FDA there's no precedent for this technology. And uh, clinical trials take time. Um, and we're now beginning our second and third clinical trials for the prosthetic foot and now orthotic uh, emulator. Um, so, you know, we're, we're betting big on that uh, project or that, that product, um, but we're also betting very patiently. Um, there's other applications where, uh, you know, you've got to build it quickly uh, and, um, you know, bring it to market as fast as you can. And it's sort of a sink or swim situation. But generally speaking, with a wearable robotics type solution, um, the proof is in, does it actually make somebody's life better? And that is a deceptively challenging task. Um, you need to build the machine. You need to test it on enough people to, to tell that story, to get those testimonials. Um, and it's, it's not like a lot of other businesses where, you know, somehow you'll solve the problems through scale and just through throwing money and people at the problem you can throw money and people at a wearable robotic solution that was a bad idea in the beginning and it's still a bad idea and it's always going to be a bad idea um, because it just fundamentally doesn't work. 
um, the way that the human body interacts with machines is so complicated. And really my focus has been on how do we really quickly identify, you know, whether you got a good idea or a bad one and just move on to the next thing. Um, so. Gotcha. So for the, sorry, um, for the business model, can you just paint a little bit more of a picture? You've referenced uh, some of these private clients, some of the, I'm so, sorry, some of these private firms, uh, government agencies, developers of medical devices that would be working with you as a client. How do they engage with you? Can you just talk down to like, is it a, uh, you know, a fee for service model? Like what is the, the business model of how Humotech works with their clients? Sure. So the way it works today, um, we sell a hardware software package um, that, Basically, it's a capital expenditure in somebody's budget. Um, and there, there's some recurring revenue through ongoing services and, and parts and upgrades and whatnot. Um, but for now, you know, it's mostly a single purchase. Yeah. And um, we are certainly exploring and pushing for uh, more kind of SaaS type uh, uh sales models. Um, but up until now, it's not been the right business model for the current customer base because of how their funding cycles work. Yeah. I was going to say, especially if it's a, a, you know, they're doing a fundraise or looking for some sort of grant. That's a, a kind of brutal model for them. Yeah. So, you know, they get a $2 million grant and they've got some percentage of that that they can allocate for equipment. They just want to do that get it over with, get the equipment and get to work. And we may not hear from them for two years. Um, and then we get to have another sales conversation, you know, for the next project. So that's, that's how that's worked. And, uh, you know, this has come with some challenges for sure. Um, Humatech's uh, got a, been kind of a roller coaster ride in terms of how many orders are we trying to fulfill in a given month? Um, one month we may go from five and then the next month we've got nothing um and so smoothing out the bumps is one of my big jobs absolutely how do you think about uh, think about constructing your team where you probably want to pour as much i mean we're in literally like it's called an r&d facility here um you want to pour as much as you can into r&d develop the the service but at the same time if you hypothetically you could throw a hundred salespeople on the ground and go close more business. Like, is it, is there a big enough universe to go deploy from like a sales and marketing standpoint, that kind of quantity of people or how, how do you think about that teeter totter? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is one of the biggest things that has kept me up at night over the years. Um, somebody at some point gave me the analogy of, uh, outside fin financing being like kerosene you throw on the fire and I'm always thinking, is now the right time for kerosene on the fire? And uh, so far, it hasn't been. Um, the uh, so there's there's fundamentally a, a growth rate for the industry that is hard to measure in real time. You know, retrospectively, you look at an industry that's exploded, and it's easy to you know plot a hockey stick. Uh, type of growth in terms of, you know, the dollar size of the industry or the number of total users or whatever. But when you're in the thick of it, it's hard to know, are you at the inflection point? 
Are you 10 years too early? Are you 10 years too late? Um, and the sort of exoskeletons, wearable robotics space is an old industry. I mean, more than 100 years old. I mean, if it's rooted in prosthetics, that really has been around for yeah. quite some time. Yeah. People often cite some patents from the late 1800s as, as kind of being the beginning of exoskeleton technology. And yeah, prosthetics is even older than that. Um, so yeah, I mean, the you know, fast forward to today, we're seeing the explosion of a lot of related industries. We talked about personal computers earlier. Um, certainly other aspects of, or other applications of robotics, uh, we're seeing explode like driverless cars. Um, so I think there's a lot of attention being placed on exoskeletons. People are wondering, is the time now? And, um, we, we think we're in a very exciting time for the industry, but we're also seeing boom bust cycles. Yeah. And they're not like massive boom bust cycles. I think they're relatively small ones in the grand scheme of things. So some number of years, 10, 20, 50 years in the future, we'll look back and I think we'll see those cycles as kind of noise in the overall picture of growth. Um, so Humotech's goal is to be the platform for all of the folks working on causing this industry to explode. Um, and, you know, we're betting on a few different horses in this race. Um, but personally, um, my, my kind of gauge is, again, focusing on the sort of elite class of customers that I was telling you about earlier. Um, we want to be responsive to what those elite customers are saying that they need. And we think that will keep us honest and, and relevant as the field of potential customers grows. So you, you often see these charts of, you know, on the, on the far left, you have the early adopters and on the far right, you have the laggards we're still in the very, very, very early adopters. So my focus, you know, with Humotech is to serve those early adopters really well. Of course, I want the whole, I want to, I want to own the whole market if I can. But if I try to uh, force the solution we have today into a mass market, mass, mass consumable solution, to a population of potential customers that isn't ready, isn't interested, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm too early. Yeah. Uh, so we're trying to walk that line. And where we're at right now, I think we're starting to see, um, A, we're starting to see pri like big private companies investing in wearable robotics. This is a really strong signal for me. So 10 or 20 years ago, this wasn't the case. But today we're starting to see consumer goods companies investing in this space, power tool companies, we're seeing big companies in other industries that people wouldn't have expected to be interested in wearable robotics. Yeah. And that tells me we're at the beginning of something big because those are mass market industries. Um, and... The reason we're having initial success in those markets 
is because we're working really hard to knock it out of the park with that elite group of more R&D type customers who have spread the good word. And when, you know, commercial businesses, you know, for-profit companies are building their in-house skunk works, they're hiring people that we've worked with. And if they're already familiar with your platform and they found it easy to use, then that's how it kind of proliferates naturally. Yeah. So that is how I'm keeping my finger on the pulse of the growth of the industry. And I think we'll know uh, the right time to stomp on the accelerator. It'll Uh, be obvious. Do you, um, have you, are you familiar with Epic Games, the company behind Fortnite? A little bit. My, my gamer days were back in the 90s. So so speaking of that, Tim Sweeney, who founded Epic Games, do you know when Epic Games was founded? No. I believe it was 1994. You can fact check me on that, but it was like the mid 90s, basically. And when you consider that Fortnite only was like created in 2016 or 17 and blew up in 2018, um, that gives you a ton of perspective on how long these things can That's uh, a guy with can, patience. T- can take. A guy with patience and also a guy with vision. So the other yep. note that I made after the first time we talked was when you were talking about creating the OS for exoskeletons, it really made me think of him and his company where he started, where he was just super into uh, video games and he wanted to create a video game studio and he was building his own games. And then he realized that to create more v- interesting video games, he needed to create the OS. In their case, it's called the Unreal Engine that Fortnite is built with, but it's also used to render, you know, uh, cinema quality movies and other sort of things, which is in his world, the actual underlying infrastructure for the future sci-fi of the metaverse. And so I, I see a lot of similarities in the story where maybe the exoskeletons are a little bit further away um, than the metaverse, given we had you know one of the biggest tech companies on the planet rename themselves as such. Um, but there, there does seem to be uh, a kind of acknowledgement that these things do not happen quickly if you study the, the history of these technological trends. But, you know, finding, they probably would cringe being called influencers, the, these clients of yours, but like the influencers of your sector who will kind of more or less define what the taste is and what the, the essential tools are for this type of technology. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who wants to create massive change at some point is going to reckon with the fact that there's not the infrastructure that they they feel like they need uh, to implement that change. And so there begins the sort of drudgery of preparing the world for the change that you envision. And, uh, well, you got to pick the kind of drudgery you enjoy dealing with. Uh, so, you know, though there are aspects of what I do that are tedious, I just geek out about it. I just love it, you yeah. know? Uh, so I, I think um, uh, that's been a big part of my journey is just figuring out how to be patient, um, how to maintain the vision, and, and just how to stay excited uh, every day. Um, when what you're trying to accomplish seems monumental and there's all these barriers stacked up against you. Got it. Um, Power tools is an interesting application. When you mentioned that, I could see there is a a relatively clear pathway from someone who's holding a power tool to having some sort of robotics being involved in the actual application of that. That's a good one. Yeah, think about anywhere where injuries are common. I mean, 
people injure themselves sitting on the couch. So <laughs> really the technology could work, could have a place anywhere. Um, but yeah, particularly exciting right now are those fields where you have workers. I mean, it's their job to be there in that risky situation. Um, and there's measurable injury rates that are, that are shocking to the, you know, the big companies in the space. And that's sending them looking for solutions. And, you know, there's this cadre of wearable robotic startups that are saying, you know, we have the solution. And uh, right now we're seeing, you know, is there a product market fit? That's um, yeah, pretty exciting. Absolutely. Um, Josh, this has been great. I appreciate you uh, hosting us and sharing some of your time to talk about Hemotech. Um, what did we, uh, what did you want to get to that I didn't give you a chance to? Uh, I should have had something ready for this. <laughs> Well, okay, here's something we could talk about. Um, so I recently had the harebrained idea to start another company uh, before <laughs> As exiting every good my first company. Does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this does seem to be a, a common thread. Um, but uh, yeah, so with all the platform building work at Humotech, um, I've been really excited about how we're you know building this this future. Uh, that's going to be full of innovative products in 10 or 20 or wh however many years uh, will be there. Um, but there's been a piece of me kind of yearning for uh, more direct human contact. It's sort of why I got into the field. I wanted to help people. Um, and, uh, you know, doing that with Humotech uh, and playing a long game very intentionally uh, because we think that's what the field needs. Um, but I recently started a, a, a services business where we're consulting directly um, with individuals who need or want uh, some kind of wearable technology, and also with innovators and investors um, looking to solve, you know, wearable technology problems at large um, in the industry. And so this has been uh, kind of kind of fun, kind of crazy. Uh, to be uh, kind of carrying two visions, uh, related visions within the same field. Um, but it's enabled me to kind of zoom out of what I'm doing in the trenches every day at Hemotech and see the field from some different perspectives. Um, you know, the perspective of the individual who needs the technology is, is really important. So Hemotech doesn't have a solution that it can sell to individuals today. We're not, you know, we don't have any FDA approved medical devices. Um, we're working on that, but that'll take time. But I can consult with individuals who are wondering what are their options? You know, as, as a user of a prosthesis or an orthosis or an exoskeleton or whatever, you have very few opportunities to be presented with options. Um, you find yourself in a, a you know, in a, an exam room for some reason or another and you need help um, and a solution is offered to you um, typically without a thorough exploration of alternative solutions and uh, we think this is a big problem um, because we think personalization is critical to realizing the promise of wearable robotics so Humotech's platform um, will eventually enable uh, individuals to test drive different options uh, in a clinic. Um, but, 
you know, that solution isn't available yet. So what can I do with individuals in Pittsburgh and around the world who saw a Humotech video and are feeling inspired, um, but don't see a solution for them on the website? Now I have this channel we're, we're calling the Business Realize Labs, where I can at least have a conversation. I may not even sell this individual something, but at least I can be inspired by them and I can help give them some lessons learned, some connections, um, and maybe there's something we can build for them. Um, so that's been really energizing me lately. And that's an important part of you know just bringing any sort of product or service to market is actually being right there in touch with the end consumer of it. You, you kind of allude to, it's great to have those elite institutions, elite characters as you're paying customers, but there is a you know potential ivory towers effect where we're all up here, you know, over intellectualizing a problem that's that's not mean to necessarily be uh, reductive of what goes on. But if you're actually seeing the people that are affected by it on a day-to-day basis, you stay in touch with your why and you stay in touch with what is the actual problem that they just desperately want to solve and let's stay oriented to that. Yeah, this is a common problem in fields with, you know, big problems and potential complex technology solutions, the people developing the solutions have to work at it so hard and so long and develop so much expertise that a lot of complexity grows between the thought leaders and the individual end users. And I think as someone who runs a company, I have to constantly work to stay in touch with the individuals. Uh, who who would benefit from the technology. And this kind of snuck up on me after, I don't know, year five or so, I started to realize like, now that I'm not that guy in the lab, who's like the one administering the protocol, I don't get to have the conversations where you're just shooting the breeze um, with the individual prosthesis user. Um, So yeah, I've uh, very intentionally created this opportunity for engagement um, that I think is, you know, really beneficial to everyone. Smart. So if folks want to learn more about Humotech, see some cool videos, all the stuff you guys are up to, uh, what digital coordinates can we provide people that want to learn more? For sure. Naturally, Humotech.com. And you can look me up uh, on LinkedIn. Josh Caputo. I think I'm easy to find. Yeah. Spam you there. Should be, should be easy to find. Uh, we're going to link all that in the show notes. Going deeper there.com slash podcast is the place to find it for every single episode of the show. Also in the podcast app, you're probably listening to this right now, but Josh, before we let you go, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Ah, uh, yes. And, uh, actually I'm going to recommend the opposite of your example that you gave to me earlier. Okay. Uh, I recommend you go out on a hike and you turn off your cell phone and you spend an hour just thinking about what am I doing with my life? Right on. Uh, Any good trails that you're a particular fan of here in Western Pennsylvania? Oh man, there's so many. Um, Well, I'm getting married in August and I've been thinking a lot about the Laurel Highlands. So I'd recommend the Laurel Highlands. There's a ton of options. Uh, well, we're filming this right before the 4th of July uh, weekend, so uh, it's going to be crazy down there in Ohio pile. But get off the beaten track. Go to Roaring Run or Lynn Run State Park, one of those places you've probably never heard of. Right on. Uh, go take a hike, turn off your phone, and uh, continue paying attention because Josh Caputo is up to interesting stuff. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you.
We just went deep with Josh Caputo. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you for listening to the end of my interview with Josh. If you enjoyed it, I am confident that you would also enjoy our past interviews with roboticists like Jurgen Pedersen and Tom Galuzzo. Both of them have been builders in the robotics industry for quite some time and have some very interesting origin stories. Go check those out and hit subscribe because we've got some fantastic interviews coming real soon. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.